Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. Public defenders are attorneys appointed by a court to defend individuals accused of crimes who cannot afford a private lawyer. Currently, Oregon has a shortage of public defenders, which deprives defendants of their constitutional right to a speedy trial. This shortage of public defenders is causing harm to the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people and has even led judges to dismiss serious cases. My guest is Oregon attorney Tara Haravel. Welcome, Tara. Thank you, Karen. Hello. So glad to be here. So, Tara, let's start with what types of law do you practice? People who are accused of crimes in federal court uh, as court-appointed public defense. And then also in state court, I serve clients who are prisoners and who are suffering in subconstitutional conditions. And that typically includes poor or inadequate medical care, but can also include hazardous conditions in the prison. And they have a a right to counsel in this state, which is unique. And I uh, have a large part of my practices is that kind of law. And speaking of unique, explain the public defense system here in Oregon, because it is unique in that it does rely entirely on contracted services. Yeah, to my knowledge, the Office of Public Defense is kind of an outlier in this way. There may be other defense systems across the country that have a solely contractor-based provider system, but I don't know what that system is. And so the Office of Public Defense uses contractors across the state for its public defense services. Talk a little bit about the history, Tara. How did we get to this place? Because public defenders have been yelling about the caseloads, wanting higher pay, even before COVID. So talk about the history a little bit and how did COVID-19 exacerbate this already declining system? Sure. And just to lay it out, Oregon is particularly unique in failing to provide adequate counsel statewide over the past year, leaving a range between low hundreds and high hundreds of people accused of crimes without representation. And so folks are in custody and are litigating their own motions and losing because they're going for months and months and months without any attorneys. This is a spectacular failure. There is no public defense system across the country I know of that is in such disarray. It is a constitutional crisis uh, for people who are guaranteed the right to counsel, to adequate counsel in the state and federal constitutions. And it puts us at a in a horrible place across the system for providers, for people who are obviously the people impacted the most, are people who go without representation and languish in jail or, uh, you know, even if they're out of custody uh, without an attorney. So this is, of course, a a complicated and multi-reason, ugly picture as to how we got here. But certainly the red flags have been flying freely for years. And it is a combination of extreme mismanagement by the Office of Public Defense without oversight or being reined in until the crisis was really at an incredible pitch as it is now, primarily by the administrators who are at the top of the Office of Public Defense. There's lots of people who are doing the very best they can who are at 
underneath the administration, but uh, the directors and the legal directors have really run us into uh, right off the cliff uh, in terms of providing substandard constitutional right to counsel. Uh, And then it's also a factor of, I mean, obviously of deeply underfunded services, um, a deeply underfunded budget by the legislature for ever that I can tell. I, I came to Oregon and started taking public defense cases maybe 12 plus years ago. And the rate at that time um, for appointing counsel was $40, $45 an hour. We were paid $40, $45 an hour as attorneys with law school debts to do incredibly difficult work, backbreaking, heartbreaking, significantly challenging work. And there has been allowed in this state a huge gap and pay disparity between district attorneys funding and public defender funding to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars. So, I mean, I believe the numbers are at this point that a starting salary for a public defender in an agency kind of position is around $60,000, depending where you are. And it's a good tens of thousands of dollars more for a district attorney. I mean, there's a huge gap and that's been allowed because of funding streams where these cases are funded from to occur for forever, to my knowledge. And then there is the kind of pervasive condition of a public defender's work, which it requires a backbreaking caseload. You know, you could have easily 100 plus cases at any given time. And you're coming into a job where you've got a massive law school debt and, you know, you're being horribly underpaid and you're being crushed by the work. And then the other part that is um, critical to this particular disaster is that the Office of Public Defense has engaged in real serious labor abuses and gender disparity in pay. And it has pushed out a lot of people. People will not take cases. Over the last year, there's been a huge flight. There's a current ACLU-initiated Department of Justice investigation ongoing um, into the gender disparity pay by the Office of Public Defense and retaliation for women contractors in particular who speak up. There's dozens of women who have joined and uh, have raised complaints uh, and it's gotten to this level. So, you know, there's a contract dispute that's ongoing with the Office of Public Defense for contractors at this time, because even in a time when there is a a horrid scarcity of people willing to work with the Office of Public Defense. They are presenting contracts, and I've had these presented to myself as well, that contain labor abuses um, if they were signed and are completely inappropriate for contractor relationships. So, you know, they're just making sure that there are not going to be enough people in almost every action that they take. And nobody, not their board, the Public Defense Commission, or anybody else, by the way, they're under audit um, because of mismanagement of money. They were found by 2019 and a study last year. The 2019 study was by the Sixth Amendment Center, and it was contracted by the Office of Public Defense, but they don't seem to have followed any of the roadmap provided. And then another study by the ABA, and both found that they were providing subconstitutional 
levels of oversight, monitoring, or really, you know, the job they're supposed to do as the Office of Public Defense in retaining adequate counsel or inviting adequate counsel to uh, remain retained, and that they weren't even tracking their own cases, that the Office of Public Defense did not even have a system of tracking their own cases. They had these studies that they chose to ignore which eventually brought in the Ways and Means Committee um, sometime in the last 12 months, last year, who are now performing a series of audits to try to regain control of this completely out of control organization. So, you know, to varying degrees, it's a system so broken that I think the only thing that really could change it is to wipe the slate clean, really, and really have outside oversight of the board who have made the decisions in hiring and allowing people who are completely inappropriate to be in positions of power. And obviously the administration, the higher administration of the Office of Public Defense, who are, I mean, just legion with very particular and founded complaints against them and their labor practices and revanchist practices, particularly against women contractors. As you mentioned, this report by the American Bar Association that was released did find that Oregon has only 31% of the public defenders that it needs. So what are we talking about? What kind of caseloads are we talking about? And also, you, you mentioned people litigating their own cases. What chance do these people have against, uh, you know, no legal representation by the public defenders with a DA or prosecutor office that gets all the funding they need? Right. So people accused of crimes, and I have seen this play out firsthand, are litigating their own cases. The first things that happen in a case, in a state or a federal case, criminal case, is Uh, There are opportunities for bail hearings or release hearings in the case of federal court. But in state court, which is what we're talking about, I've had a client who had no counsel for three months while she was in custody. And this is important. She was accused of a crime. She wasn't even convicted. Not that this would be acceptable if she were convicted either. But she was in custody for three months without an attorney. She and her mother argued her bail hearing. And they lost. She lost because of course she did. And so she languished further and for longer until she finally got an appointed attorney. But that appointed attorney was the only person who would take the case was hundreds of miles away across Oregon. That attorney, I don't know, has ever seen her in person. She might've seen her once, but they have, you know, not got been able to develop the kind of attorney-client relationship, nobody could. When you have an attorney that's hundreds of miles across the state and unable realistically to have adequate contact with a client. So, you know, that's one example, but the examples go on and on and on. And this is a, couldn't be a more marginalized, disenfranchised base. People accused of crimes are overwhelmingly poor in Oregon. They're overwhelmingly people of color. They overwhelmingly have mental health conditions that are not treated, and they are in a position that is absolutely untenable. And so, you know, we may not hear these stories about how people have, you know, been deprived of their liberty by having to argue and losing their own, like, bail release hearings, because we can't, there won't be follow-up for those folks. And so it's, it is really incomprehensible 
the state that we're in at this time. Tara, what types of crimes are we talking about? Well, um, there have been some very serious ones up to attempted murder and assault, felonies most certainly. And there's been, I think, some media reports about how some felony cases that involved uh, violent crimes or person crimes uh, were dismissed because they did not have counsel. And for sure, that has outraged the victim's rights community. There are some very interesting attempts by the courts, by some courts, to rein this in, and they're desperate measures. But in Washington County, the presiding judge uh, had to threaten to hold the Office of Public Defense in contempt if it didn't assign counsel. And in fact, the Marion County Court, I believe Judge Geyer, uh, ended up assigning multiple cases to the legal director, Eric Dietrich, and other staff members who are attorneys at the Office of Public Defense, they refused to show up for the appearances based on a refusal, their own refusal and thinking they had a legal right not to appear and um, were held in contempt. The legal director, Office of Public Defense's legal director was held in contempt for failing to even appear. And they uh, made a plea to the They entreated the Supreme Court to find in their favor, and the Supreme Court denied that. So it's an absolute shambles. Give some more examples of how long people are actually waiting and and what, what are the harms here that we, as you said, we're not hearing about all of the harms, including the harm to victims of crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's been a lot of coverage about victims of crime or alleged victims of crime, I am a defense attorney, being very distressed by the process, very distressed that they are not receiving the attention, the care, um, the procedural steps that they should. And having cases dismissed where there are alleged crimes of violence, I mean, I can just imagine being in somebody's shoes who has been victimized in that way and how incredibly awful and traumatizing that would be that nobody is. I mean, I think that that's a kind of pervasive issue um, for people who are victims of crimes is they're very disenfranchised often from the process, which is not really about them. It's about the state, but that's another conversation. And then, you know, you have this layered on top of it and it's just, I, it's, it's appalling, but then, you know, I mean, any day spent in jail, that is wrong is a trauma and a horror. No one should spend a single day in jail who shouldn't be there. And the fact that people are languishing in jail, spending more time in jail, specifically because of the Office of Public Defense and this legislature's refusal to fund and refusal to adequately run public defense in this state has absolutely immediate and serious impact on people who are already tremendously disenfranchised. So I am aware of cases that have taken months to get appointments. I mean, many months. And there are also cases like the types of cases I I practice, which are constitutional challenges to terrible medical care or other types of conditions, poor conditions type claims. Those folks, there's over, there's almost 200 of those cases without any representation. That means people, and these are case types that are supposed to, under the law, be heard immediately. They're supposed to be heard immediately because of 
the constitutional claims at issue. And they are not. <laughs> they are not being heard at all. And people are, you know, languishing without adequate medical care, getting worse and worse. Uh, all kinds of effects. People who have no mental health medication because, you know, the prisons don't care and aren't going to do it and aren't going to do it unless it's um, zealously advocated. So nobody's there for them. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I'm not able to do those cases anymore either because of the labor abuses at the Office of Public Defense. And it breaks my heart. I was presented with a contract just this week and it was so offensive. Um, And apparently there was no room to excise the labor abuses. I am unable to assist people anymore um, by taking cases through the Office of Public Defense. And I'm certainly not. There are many more like me. We talked about who this is affecting disadvantaged people, poor people, but it is also disproportionately affecting people of color. Well, we disproportionately incarcerate people of color in this state and pretty much every other. So um, compared to the population, the numbers are much higher um, in every category uh, with the highest disparity between population and incarceration being African-American people. And so that is just baked into our system of injustice that is baked in everywhere. It's baked in, in Oregon and Oregon is, you know, much whiter, but I think the numbers of people who are mentally ill are even more disproportionate and the people who are poor and all of these combine to create a completely irresponsible um, approach in this state that will take deep investment, deep care, serious engaged monitoring by the legislature and new leaders in the board and in the administration of the Office of Public Defense. And those are no small tasks. Those are things that take years. The workforce in so many other systems here in Oregon is just not there. The people are just not there and they're trying so many incentives. I know the legislature did pour some money into the public defense system, but how are we going to entice or bring the 69% more public defenders into the Oregon system? It's incredibly hard because what I see is public defenders and contract public defenders have no faith in this administration. Uh, We've been really badly treated. And people who are coming to public defense work are coming because of passion. You're coming to make money. You're not coming, you know, for prestige. You're coming for a public defender job versus like an insurance defense job where you're going to make two and a quarter a year um, versus like 60, 70,000 a year, maybe probably more closer to 50 something because you care. And you care deeply. And so that that same passion can be twisted. And, and when it's abused, it is, it is devastating and incredibly destructive. And what the Office of Public Defense's leadership has done with some of that money is create more distrust. They're hiring several attorneys to simply go um, and secretly investigate contract attorneys across the state. <laughs> and they've got job positions up for this role. It's, it could not be more ridiculous. So, you know, to, to create trust, you have to build trust. The people at, at the helm at this point, I don't know anybody who trusts a word that comes out of their mouth. 
nobody at this point. They have damaged credibility for years. The current powers that be continue to damage that credibility. So, I mean, you have to really just wipe the slate clean in our case. And the problem is, and not to just be so pessimistic, but this Oregon system of public defense is now so poor and has received so much national media for being uniquely substandard. Who wants to come and apply for a job and be part of that? I mean, the heavy lift is beyond for somebody to be enticed or, you know, to be interested in a position where it open is, uh, that's a heavy lift. Definitely further erodes the public trust in the criminal legal system. Yep. So there are people advocating, saying it's not just a matter of hiring more public defenders, but it's also looking for alternatives, not arresting so many people, you know, reducing these caseloads in in other ways. Let's talk about what you feel the solutions could be. Well, I mean, the typical approach for progressive district attorneying, if that's a word, is to um, focus primarily on violent crime and much less on property crime and misdemeanors and lesser property crime. And there are a handful of district attorneys across the state and across the country who have implemented programs that do just that. With pushback, if you look at Chesa Boudin, the very progressive district attorney in San Francisco who was recalled and removed from his position for you know, implementing a program just like that. And, and Mike Schmidt in the district attorney's office in Multnomah is considered also a progressive district attorney and one of a handful who were uh, hired in the election cycle of the last couple of years. And he's, you know, he's been also, uh, he's really suffered a lot of blowback as well for those kinds of implementing those kind of policies. But that's really, I mean, we have such an overblown system of ridiculous over-incarceration. Why should any poor person who steals a can of soup (laughs) be subject to time in jail and disrupted from their jobs, in their families, in their housing, have something on their record that disrupts future employment? We are completely out of control in terms of over-incarceration and for, you know, life crimes, livelihood crimes. There are some really good programs in Multnomah County I think mental health court and courts that focus on lesser drug counts. And there's a new court uh, starting up in a kind of pilot stage called the step court in Multnomah County um, to remove people from the mandatory minimum sentencing schemes in the state um, under what's called measure 11 uh, and get them in treatment instead and on a course to receive treatment and be outside, be able to get outside of this onerous measure 11 system of mandatory minimums that just wipes lives out. So there are real specific programs from the district attorney's office and those types of programs could be funded more liberally uh, across the state. But again, that's like a, it's a county by county choice as to whether that's endorsed or not. The disparity between district attorney pay and public defense pay is absolutely essential to address. And the issues here in this crisis are not so much about the quality of representation. They're about the complete absence of representation. Um, There are tons of public defenders, the ones who are left in taking these cases, who are so heartful and try their very best to do the best they can 
but nobody can really attend to a caseload of 150 cases. You just can't. It's not possible. And that is a matter of funding that we know. That is, it is no surprise that that is uh, the result is you have inadequate quality of representation when you don't fund it. And Tara, talk more about cases and clients you're representing. Sure. I mean, for my state cases at this point, I help people who are incarcerated obtain medical care um, through these habeas constitutional cases. Under the Constitution, state and federal, you have a right to adequate medical care. And the Department of Corrections in Oregon has not really been tested. In my experience of coming to do this type of law, which is, as I said, really unique to have court-appointed counsel possible in Oregon. I don't know of any other state that has that. I have not seen that there has been a concerted effort on behalf of people who are incarcerated at a widespread level to improve the conditions of their confinement. And so I've been able to use in a step-by-step way, in a case-by-case way, this tool, this legal remedy to help people who are trans to be not sexually harassed, to have cellmates that are appropriate and are not cisgender males who are going to um, threaten them, to um, be able to achieve gender affirmation treatment and therapy. Uh, I've helped people who are suffering myriad mental health conditions, which is just a huge proportion of of my caseload to obtain adequate mental health care. Uh, And I have clients who are actively suicidal and have, you know, made attempts multiple times during just the time I'm representing them because they don't have adequate mental health care. Um, We have a system in this state that does the least possible for as cheaply as possible and hasn't really suffered consequence for it. There have not been these kind of wide-scale class action cases like you see in, for example, in in our sister states in Washington and in California, where there are thriving, strong prisoners' rights organizations. Only in the last really few years have you seen any efforts on that level, uh, like the COVID class action with Juan Chavez at the helm and other really excellent attorneys make a dent in that, you know, you've got to, you got to put the DOC on notice, there's going to be a consequence. And you've got to have a judge who believes and is persuaded that there's an issue. And then you've got to have consequences significant enough if you persuade a judge to really effectuate it and get DOC's attention. So that's just a huge, it's a huge problem. And I just chip away at it little by little. I also am appointed to federal cases for people who are accused of crimes and poor. And those cases are pretty remarkable in that they're almost all drug cases. Actually, all of my cases right now are drug cases and they're conspiracy cases where, you know, the the prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office are able to charge throughout this huge web and capture anybody and everybody who has ever, you know, touched a case, touched a set of circumstances that involved, you know, a a big player at the top. My clients are typically, you know, tiny, middling, just people who are addicted, um, who didn't know about anybody else in the chain. But if you get captured by the FBI in this huge web, you have to go through hell 
trying to prove that you were not a major player. Um, and most of my cases typically are people who are just like low, 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 low level people who are addicts and didn't know about anything. And they are almost all people of color. Almost all. I would say wow. right now, 80% people of color. And it's been a hundred percent. So most of the time it's the vast majority. And that is a really incredible example of how the drug war is alive and well. And, you know, there may be, there may be lip service, there may be programs, there may be, you know, protest stations that the drug war is, is largely over, but I tell you, it is not. And I see just real devastation to people as they are, are dragged through this, this muck for having little or no role with the big players and lives just, you know, destroyed. Tara Haraville, thank you so much. Thank you. This is such an important topic and I deeply appreciate giving it some coverage. Thank you, Karen. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. My guest has been Oregon attorney Tara Haraville, and thank you for listening.